So we've been looking through Hebrews, and if you think about what we've been seeing, we've been seeing a declaration of Christ, the Son of God, as being more glorious than all the things that pointed to Christ. He is more glorious than the prophets. That's verse 1. God spoke to them as they were His servants in the days of old to our fathers. He spoke through one and then through another in parts and pieces. Now He's spoken fully and finally in the person of His own Son. And a son, the argument is, is greater than a servant. This is the son who he has appointed, God has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, the universe. He made it all through Christ and for Christ, Paul says in Colossians. So Christ is clearly greater than the prophets. This authoritative son, the heir, the creator, the one who is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of His person, the imprint of His substance, the author says, who upholds the creation by His powerful Word. I mean, it is speaking of Christ in glorious terms. You cannot make the mistake of thinking that He is on the same level as the prophets. But the author wants us to think about how Christ compares elsewhere as well. He is the one who by Himself, in His own body, purged our sins, and was exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. And then the author says a parallel statement to the first verse. Just as Christ is greater than the prophets of old, who were servants, so too He is greater than the angels. He says He's been made greater than the angels, as He has by inheritance received a more excellent name than they. Now that name is Son. We've looked at this. He says, For To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? No, this is a a name reserved for Christ. It's hard to recap these things that deal with so much theology and we have to go places and look, but we are also called sons in a sense, but not the son, not the singular, only begotten, eternal son of God, special. Christ is unique. He is glorious. He is the son of God. Now, transitioning to that fourth verse, we mentioned that the argument here of Hebrews is to show that Christ is greater than all those things that Hebrew Christians might turn back to. And what are they talking about turning back to? The Old Covenant. Do we really need Christ if it's the same Father? Can't we just return to Judaism, park there, and be safe from persecution? The author of Hebrews says, how would you do it? All the things that you're turning back to were not pointing to themselves, but pointing forward to Christ. How do you turn from Christ back to things that are shadows that point to their fulfillment in Him? Now, why do angels play into this? Is there some sense of angel worship? I've mentioned several weeks in a row. I don't believe that's what's going on here. Jews were very strict about not worshiping angels. There is a connection of angels, isn't there? They were if you will, the mediators of the Old Covenant. It was double mediated, Paul says, between angels and Moses, both mediating the Old Testament. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant, mediated by one person, Christ Jesus. So if Christ is greater than the angels, and if Christ is greater than Moses, two arguments of this letter, then the New Covenant, which is mediated by Him, must be greater than the Old Covenant, mediated by them. It's just a logical argument. But it's also a true argument, because Christ is greater than the angels. The author of Hebrews says if you don't 
recognize that. Let's walk through it. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That is not addressed to any angel. And specifically, as we looked at that text, it is part of a messianic prophecy, a messianic promise of the one who would come as the son, the only begotten, the, the, the inheritor of the nations. Ask of me and I will give unto you all the nations as your inheritance. Psalm 2. Is that spoken to an angel? We've looked at it closely, I think two times in these first seven verses. That psalm pops up as the heir of all things. It points back to Psalm 2 and then that points back to Psalm 2. As we looked at it carefully, there is no way to interpret it in which God is speaking to an angel. He is speaking to this messianic heir, this king from the line of David who would one day come, who is Christ Jesus our Lord. And to make this clear, he says, and again, let's go back to 2 Samuel 7.14, where he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is the Davidic covenant being made. The promise that God is making to David that you're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house, a lineage, a royal line. And from that line will come one of whom I will say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Again, of which angel is that ever said? No angel. No angel was that ever said of, but of Christ and Christ alone. And then we looked last Sunday at this verse, which we'll come back to in a moment, in which he begins to describe why we can know even in their actions, in their economy, why angels are inferior to Christ. That He is greater than the angels, and it makes it clear even in what they are purposed to accomplish. So I want us to read these verses one more time, and then we'll look at our points for today. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, as we quickly go through this today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, a look back at verse 6. We're going to very quickly review verse 6 because verse 6 and 7 need to be kept together. Second of all, a look now at verse 7. And lastly, a theological statement on what is revealed. So beginning first with this look back at verse 6. We looked at it last Sunday morning. In fact, I intended to cover both verses last week. And at some point it became clear that wasn't going to happen. Not with us not being here all day. And so, uh, and so we said, well, we'll just cover the rest of it next week. And so today is next week. So we're going to do that. But you'll remember as we exposited the sixth verse, we saw something important. It says again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. Now, we mentioned that verse has a number of difficulties in it. 
uh, including trying to figure out exactly where he's quoting. Where is the author of Hebrews quoting from? And we mentioned that you'll have more trouble finding it possibly in your translation than if you were looking at a Greek Old Testament, a Septuagint, which is the uh, translation this author uh, clearly was using because he quotes it almost word for word, time and again. And so if you look at the, the verses we were looking at last Sunday out of the Septuagint, Deuteronomy 32:43, which has this phrase in the Septuagint, that let the angels of God worship him. And also Psalm 97, 7, which says the same thing. Again, we spoke that in both cases, in both cases, it clearly delineates that the angels are to worship Christ. Now, think about this for a moment. It's, there's no way to read it and get that reversed. There is no place that it says Christ should worship angels. But it does say the angels should worship him. And we looked at that statement of Christ being the firstborn, and that's important. Because prototokos, the, the word there in Greek, means a first rank. And of course, a lot of heretics have used that term wrongly for 2,000 years to say, see, it says that Christ was born, He was created, He is not eternal, He is not God. That is not at all what it means. And we walk through several examples in the New Testament where uh, prototokos is used in just the way of meaning first in rank. Supreme, preeminent. Paul uses it often in that way. Firstborn from the dead. Firstborn amongst many brethren. Several examples that we can think of where it's used in just this way. So again, it didn't always mean literal firstborn. It can mean that. But it would often mean the one who was supreme or a first rank. And so again, it's in this case, speaking in just that way, because Christ in this text over and over again is clearly the preeminent one. He's the son, not a servant. He's the heir. He's the glorious king of all the nations. The one through whom all things were created. The one who governs all things. Go to the parallel, if you will, in what Paul says. All things made for him, uh, through him, by him, and for him. Again, you see all these things. Clearly, Christ is supreme. He's glorious. What angel is that ever said of? Find a text anywhere in which such things are said of angels. You will not find it. So again, He is the preeminent one. But then we also looked at the timing of this statement. When is it referring to? Now you may remember we had several options because it says when He uh, brings again, or when again He brings, we talked about that a little bit of controversy. Where does the again go in the text? I told you I believe it's saying uh, that again, the next example given of an Old Testament text of Christ's glory is this. When he brings his firstborn son into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. Well, when did he bring him into the world? What's this referring to? And we spoke about the debate amongst the scholars and preachers of old about this. Is it at his incarnation when he's brought into the world? Is it a reference then to Luke 2 and the angels of God worshiping and glorifying Christ at His birth? Is it the resurrection, as many think, as uh, Christ is risen from the grave and the angels uh, glorify Christ's name, they rejoice? Um, Again, that would be a little harder to find in the text, but certainly some people think that's what it's referring to. Or is it His exaltation, the very thing this author is pointing to time and again, that the angels are Uh, worshiping Christ. And what I said last week, and I want to say it again, 
it doesn't really matter where you land. Why? If it's the incarnation, the angels are worshiping Christ. If it's the resurrection, the angels are worshiping Christ. If it's His exaltation, the angels are worshiping Christ. And what's the author's point? The angels worship Christ, not the other way around. So it really doesn't matter all that much. I told you I think in the context of the passage, he's referring to the exaltation of Christ. That's where most tend to land today, I think. But it doesn't matter. Any of those examples say the same thing. If you read John Brown, who says it's clearly referring to Christ's incarnation. If you read a scholar who says it's uh, the resurrection. Or if you read many today who say, no, this is his exaltation. They're all saying the same thing. This text proves the angels are purposed for the worship of Christ. That's why they were created. That's why they exist. They worship and serve God. So again, we shouldn't get too hung up sometimes on things that no matter which direction we go, they're going to say the same thing. There's not a lot of debate here doctrinally. And so again, the angels of God worship Him. Christ is worshipped by the angels. And that relationship is never shown in reverse. Christ never worships angels. And so the author of Hebrews says, what more evidence do you need that Christ is superior to the angels? He is greater than the angels. If all things are created for Him and angels are created, that means angels were created for Him. For Him. We spoke uh, when we talked about that all things were made through Him, that he, through Him all things were made, uh, we spoke about what Spurgeon said about that, that it's a staggering thought to think that every created thing was created for Christ. The world, humanity, angels, heaven, all these things made for Christ, for His glory. And so again, that's what the author is saying. So there is no way to make a mistake here on the order of worship. The angels worship Him. So let's move on to verse 7 now and have a look at verse 7 what we didn't get to see last week. As we begin to look at this accompanying verse, it, we see the purpose here is to establish that angels are called to worship Christ. But it brings us to another quote, doesn't it? This Psalm 104.4 that says this, Who makes His angels spirits and His ministers a flame of fire. You may have even a note in your text that says this is Psalm 104.4. It certainly is Psalm 104.4. But this is another text that there's much debate and discussion about. And you can see why. Because uh, the Mesoretic text, the the Hebrew text, words this a little bit differently. The rabbinical scholars look at this text and they say, well, it doesn't quite say that. It says, He who makes winds his messengers and flames of fire his ministers. The rabbinical exegetes today say what this psalm really shows by that interpretation is that God takes the winds and sovereignly makes them His messengers. He takes the fire and makes them His servants. Now, does God do that? Certainly He does. If God is a sovereign God, all these things are used for His purposes. So their interpretation is right in that sense. It's theologically correct, but is it interpretively correct? And here's a general rule we can lay out if you want to think about these things. If there's ever a controversy over what an Old Testament passage means and it's used in the New Testament by an inspired author of Scripture, 
then you know his interpretation is the proper interpretation. Right? This author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to use 104.4 of the Psalms correctly. And so the interpretation is here, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, that's how my Bible translates 104.4 anyway. It's also the way the Septuagint translates 104.4. Why is that important? Because some of the rabbinical scholars say Christianity influenced the way this verse is interpreted. Well, if that's the case, why does the Septuagint translate it in exactly this way that this author quotes a few hundred years before Christ even entered the world in the Incarnation? So Jews were already believing that this was the proper interpretation a few hundred years before Christianity even existed. And so again, I say, why is the Septuagint so important? So many doctrines that they try to knock down today are proven that they're not later inventions of the Christian church because the Septuagint already had it interpreted that way by Jewish scholars. I've made this point. I want to say it again because not everybody's here every week and it's important to say the controversy over what Isaiah prophesies about a virgin shall conceive. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And the Jewish scholars say it doesn't say virgin. It doesn't say virgin. Well, it's funny that the translators of the Old Testament into Greek, a few hundred years before there even was an incarnation, translated it parthenos, the Greek word for virgin, showing that was the theory or the the belief, I should say, long before Christianity even was on the scene. So again, the Septuagint is a wonderful tool that we have to show uh, that we didn't invent these interpretations. They already existed in Judaism long before Christianity existed. So again, what does it say? It says he makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Why the confusion? Well, quite simply because these words, melech, for angel, is also the Hebrew word for messenger. So you have to have the context to know is it saying messenger or angel because an angel is a messenger. And in fact, in the Greek New Testament, it's the same thing, isn't it? Angelos, which means what? Angel, but also messenger. You know, there's debate in Revelation, those letters to the churches, on the message that are sent to the angels of the churches. Does this simply mean messengers of churches? I'm giving a messenger report tonight. In Greek, that would be an angelic report. An angelic report. I'm not an angel. (laughs) But anyway, so again, the point is this. The point is, these things can be difficult. And what about the word for wind or spirit, which is right? Well, ruach means wind, and it means spirit. So given the context, you could be saying, he makes the winds his messenger, or he makes his angels spirits. Which is correct, you've got to look at the context. And if you look at the context of Psalm 104, again, over and over, it's about the glory of all that God has created. God has created His angels, His angels' spirits, spiritual beings, and His ministers a flame of fire. Now again, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? It tells you that the New Testament author here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, got it right. We don't have to wonder about that. He is saying what had always been understood, that this is saying that God makes His angels' spirits and His ministers a flame of fire. Now guess what? It's interesting this wording was always recognized to be about angels because of that link between messenger and angel. 
but also because of the link between flame of fire, this idea of seraph, and what are angels, but seraphim, right? Holy burning ones, bright burning ones. Again, the reference seems pretty clear even in the Hebrew Scriptures that it's referring here to angelic work and office. And so again, as we see that, we recognize that what he's saying is he created the angels as spirits. They are his messengers. They are ministering spirits. The author will come back to that at the end of this chapter. We're going to have a whole sermon just on what angels do. What is the purpose of angels? How are they ministering spirits? We're going to look at it. But they are ministering spirits who are like flames of fire. Now, that brings us to our third and final point. A theological statement now revealed. So, as we sum this up, what is being said here? First, a proper understanding of Psalm 1044 is that you have to see angels in the overall context of creation. God created the heavens. He created the earth. He created the angels. This is Psalm 104. It's telling you this. The great Lord who made all things ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created all things that exist out of nothing. God is worthy of glory and praise. Even the angels should recognize this, it says. Even the angels should recognize this. All things are made and serve His sovereign purpose. And that includes the angels. He makes the angels His ministering spirits, His messengers. He makes them His spirits and they serve in just this way as He is appointed. They are unto Him flames of fire. They serve Him in this way. They serve Him in this way. They serve His sovereign purpose, not their own. Not their own. Now we could get into some demonology here, couldn't we? And uh, the fall of, of some of the angels. But that isn't really our purpose here. Judgment falls upon those angels who left their proper place. Their proper place in service to God's glory. So again, the angels created for God's glory. They serve because they aren't God. They are not God. Therefore, they've got to serve. You know, Bob Dylan had a song years ago, you have to serve somebody, right? It may be the devil, it may be Christ. You're going to serve someone. Paul makes this point, doesn't he, in Romans? It's a key doctrinal point of Romans. You are either in servitude to sin or in service to Christ. In Adam, you serve sin, a slave to sin. In Christ, a bondservant to Christ. You're going to serve someone. You're going to serve someone. The angels are no different. They are created beings. They serve God. They serve God. But they worship the Son. Because the Son is God. And look at one of the contrasts that's focused on here. Christ, the Son, the preeminent one, the only begotten of the Father, is uncreated. Uncreated. That cannot be said of the angels. They are created. They are not eternal. They didn't always exist. God brought them into existence at His pleasure, for His purposes. They exist for Him, for His purpose. So the angels, even in this text, are said to be made. He makes His angels spirits. They are not uncreated. They are created. Created for a purpose in the sovereign purpose of Almighty God. 
Now, what is said of the Son cannot be said of the angels. That's all the author is saying. What can be said of the Son cannot be said of the angels. The Son is preeminent. The angels are not. The Son is eternal. The angels are not. The Son is to be served. The angels are to serve. And so what is said of the angels can also never be said of Christ. Christ is not to worship them or us. He is God worthy of all worship and praise. And the point the author wants us to know is that the angels know it. It is their chief end to worship and serve God. It's the purpose of their creation. They are ministering spirits. They do the will and work that God has appointed unto them to do. They do the work they have been given. They worship and serve Christ, the Son, and the Heir. Again, do you notice the the same thing we saw in verse 1? The prophets of old, servants. Christ, the Son. Angels, ministering spirits, servants, Christ, the Son. If you were in a household... In the days that this was written, you would make no mistake between who has a greater status. The son who is the heir of all that you see or the servants who do the will of those who own the the property that you live on. Again, this is a clear message. Christ is more glorious just as a son is more glorious than a servant. Angels are servants. They're amazing servants, but they are at the end of it all, servants of Christ. You may notice there's a connection between the purpose of angels and our own purpose. Our best catechisms and confessions of faith come back to this point. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. We are called to serve Christ. We have a very similar calling to the angels. We are not angels. We will never be angels. We are not in the middle of some far side cartoon where we die and sprout wings and go into the heavenly places as angels. We are human beings. And we have a glorious future as joint heirs with Christ. But He alone is Lord. He alone is the eternally begotten Son. He alone is this one amazing heir. We are adopted into that relationship in Him. But He alone is Lord. My friends, we need to recognize that we have a purpose to worship God, to worship Christ, and to love Him. In fact, the fall of man as recorded in Scripture takes place when mankind becomes too wise by half to serve and follow God's direction and says, you know what, I've got my own path here. You can read that story in Genesis. I don't need to repeat it again. But again, the question throughout the Scriptures is, Do you recognize the glory of Christ? Will you serve Him? My friends, maybe some of you here today or somebody here today recognizes they're serving themselves. They're trusting in their own works, the works of their hands to to purchase their salvation. They think if they do enough good works, somehow it will uh, accredit enough that God must let them into heaven. But the Scriptures say, no, there's not enough good works you could ever do because all of your works are tainted by sin. All our best, and as we think of the most holy works, are like filthy rags to a holy and righteous God. So we are without hope in and of ourselves. The good news 
of the gospel is that we're not left to ourselves. That Christ came and gave His life as an atonement for our sin. That if we stand in Him by God's grace through faith, that we shall be saved. My friends, I want us to think about this. Our purpose is not so different. We are called to worship God, to serve Him, to bring glory to His name, just as the angels are, maybe in different ways in the economic workings that God has sovereignly chosen, but we are still to worship and to serve in Christ. So my friends, I just want to ask you today, are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation? There is no other ark in which to weather the storm. No other ark other than Christ. Amen.